0: Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley's sermon podcast. This Sunday was the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany, and we hear from the Right Reverend Eugene Sutton, the Bishop of Maryland, as he preached from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 38. As always, you can find more sermons or more information about All Souls on our website, which is allsoulsparish.org. Morning, my brothers and sisters. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Creator and our Savior Jesus Christ. I come from you, come to you from the far eastern regions of the Diocese of California. <laughs> the east, 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 east bay, <laughs> called the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, and we I just bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters there. We are all one and our work to do the ministry of Christ in the world. And we're looking forward to hosting the General Convention of the Episcopal Church next summer. We were going to do it last summer, but there was a little virus. And we think it's going away by then. Foolish us. But something will happen then. And we look forward to hosting you, as many of you as can make it there. This was morning, I want to call your attention to the gospel lesson. Why? Because in the United States of America, over 30,000 of its citizens are killed every year by guns. Another 80,000 are shot every year, estimated 80,000, most of whom will carry permanent injuries and all of whom will carry emotional scars for the rest of their lives. So just think about those figures. It means that every 8 to 10 years, 1 million Americans are shot in this country. Let's break it down on what these numbers mean. It means that on average, 1 in 3 people in the United States know someone who has been shot. On average, 31 Americans are murdered with guns every day. And 151 are treated for a gun assault in an emergency room. Every day on average, 55 people kill themselves with a firearm. 46 people were shot or killed in an accident with a gun. More than one in five US teenagers ages 14 to 17, report having witnessed the shooting. An average of seven children and teens are killed by guns every day. And it's not just urban teens. Did you know that teens in rural counties are as likely to be killed by a gun as urban counties? Only in rural counties, they shoot themselves. And in urban counties, they're more likely to be shot by another. American children die by guns 11 times as often as children in other high-income countries. And firearm homicide is the second leading cause of death after motor vehicle crashes for young people to age 19 in the United States. This comes at a tremendous cost to our society. One million emergency room visits. One million families grieving. One million victims and survivors trying to put broken bodies and emotional wounded souls back together again. The financial costs are staggering. Billions of dollars, almost half the cost borne by you and me, taxpayers. The long-term costs of physical rehabilitation, the wheelchairs, the emotional costs to the victims and their families that last for decades. The violence affects us all, whether it's in the middle-class enclaves of Newtown, Connecticut, or Berkeley, California or a native reservation in the Dakota Plains, a school campus here or there, a mall, an army base, or some forgotten street in a godforsaken part of Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland. We are a nation mourning over the killing of its children. What's going to stop it? What's going to stop the epidemic And it is that it's a disease, the epidemic of violence in our country and in our world. The Christian gospel has proclaimed for thousands of years that there is a cure. But we have lost confidence in our days that ancient solutions will work. We have lost confidence in the power of the gospel to change people's lives and institutions and societies. For according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cure for violence is love. Jesus said in the gospel lesson, it's not really a sign for today, it's a sign for next week because the lectionary committee knew I was going to visit this Sunday. (laughs) Holy Spirit. (laughs) Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who curse you. Bless those who abuse you. Love. Do good. Bless. Pray for. Is he crazy? (laughs) Our violence-ridden culture would have us believe that Jesus, maybe those were wonderful words 2,000 years ago in some little backward corner of the world, but here, in the 21st century no 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 we're not going to love our enemies we must fight our enemies outwit and outmaneuver our enemies destroy and kill our enemies before they outmaneuver outwit and destroy and kill us and yet Martin Luther King Jr many years ago had these to say this these words to say about this gospel lesson he said Jesus has become the practical realist far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer the command to love others is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization yes it is love that will save our world and our civilization love and even for enemies was he right or was he wrong how does it actually work? You may have heard stories I have of, of persons in martial arts who will sometimes will invite someone to attack them, and then the person would end up lying on the ground before they get there because they center their spiritual energy and guided it toward nonviolence. What is that force? That nonviolent power that can disarm people. Power, in human terms, is the ability and use of force to accomplish your will on others or on situations. There's another word for power in the the New Testament, the Greek word dunamis, which occurs over 120 times in the New Testament. It's a creative, dynamic power that's very different from the power over aspects of human-defined power. It's spiritual power, the power that can only come from God. Do you believe in God? I do, because I've seen that power. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in my community's life. And I see it happening in the world. As for human or worldly power, the United States is unquestionably the most powerful nation the world has ever known. We have unparalleled economic power. We have immense technological power. We have unmatched military power, which can destroy targets with pinpoint accuracy thousands of miles away. And yet with all the power that is possible to acquire on this earth, still our country, our beloved nation, the United States of America, is not able to force the rest of the world to do what we want them to do. Hello, Afghanistan, Vietnam, should we name others, Nicaragua, the American Republic, enslaved persons. Despite our massive power, in human terms, we frequently find ourselves powerless over persons or situations to get under our control. We find that we cannot force others to bend to our will. So we need to make a distinction, don't we, between power on the one hand and control on the other. I'm so glad Professor McDougall is here at the (laughs) Theology. Because um, I'm going to now talk about an attribute of God. Uh, I know it's going to be on the test. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the distinction. Before I get to the distinction theologically, I want to tell a story. I learned how to preach from Jesus. He just said, tell him a story. (laughs) Several years ago in Mason, Tennessee, an elderly black woman named Louise de Reed. She astounded the nation when she persuaded an escaped convict from a local prison to surrender. He had a gun and with his gun, he thought he had control. He surprised her and her husband Nathan outside their house and forced them inside. But Louise Decker-Finried was not afraid of the gun. This short grandmotherly woman told the convict to put his gun down while she fixed him some breakfast. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you ever had a southern home-cooked breakfast. I came close yesterday. My seminarians took me to that place in Oakland where we had chicken and waffles. (laughs) I forget the name of that place. But uh, I almost became a Christian again. <laughs> if you haven't experienced that kind of breakfast, the amazingly curative powers of fat, <laughs> butter, and grits, and molasses. You ever have fat back? Oh, no, y'all know what I'm talking about. Fat back. You take fat and you fry it in fat, <laughs> and you eat that. Well, my 103-year-old grandmother on one side, my 95-year-old father who uh, died last year, my 91-year-old mother who died two weeks ago. Oh, um, they, didn't get, they weren't killed from this. <laughs> <laughs> While cooking the meal, Louise spoke of her faith to that young man and how he should behave and that with God's help, he could turn his life around. In no time at all, that young man was back home, back to his place in a Tennessee prison. No one was hurt. The escaped convict had control, control of the gun. But Louise DeGreffin Reed had power. There's a fundamental distinction between control and power. It's very important that we see it both in our personal lives, in our society, in our families, and in our theology. God, we say, is omnipotent, all powerful. And that is true. But we must not confuse God's power with God's control. God is all powerful, but God is not all controlled. God has plenty of power. God changed my life. That's power. I was going in one direction, and God led me in another. He didn't do that with a gun. But God chooses to exercise little control of the world. Every parent. How many people here have have, ever had parents? (laughs) Boy. 75% of this church <laughs> have, have parents. Every parent knows, my gosh, you have an infant, a you know, toddler. You got to control their world. It's for safety reasons. Control is very important. But the kind of control you have over a three-year-old doesn't work on a 13-year-old. And the kind of control for a 13-year-old does not work at a 30-year-old. And in fact, parenting. Oh my gosh! Who thought of this? It's horrible. It's horrible. Every year you have to you have to lift control and let them do things you know they shouldn't be doing. And I'm looking at these guys over here, Richard. Uh, God bless you guys. Bless you guys. Just stay, stick with them for a while. It's for a good reason. But that, that's, that, that's the thing. You have, to, you have to ease up on control and actually become more powerful in their lives. But it's hard. It's hard for the church. It pains me to see, especially some churches, It's one of the reasons I'm an Episcopalian, is I left churches that tried to treat me as a three-year-old. Cognitively. Emotionally, theologically. And the institution was invested at keeping us at a low level of spiritual development because it was an instrument of control. The unchecked human need for control arises out of fear, fear of an unsafe and a chaotic world. If only the world were more predictable, we think, then I would feel better, I would feel safer. It's fear. Why don't I get a gun? Why don't I get 10 guns? Why don't I get a bazooka? What's stopping me from having a tank? Because the world is unsafe. The world is chaotic. I need to get control of this situation. It's because of fear that humans tend to theologize a controlling God. Thus, we tend to believe that it is our duty, led by a controlling God, to control others by any means of control at our disposal. Oh, here we go, here's a gun, here's a bomb. But the agenda of God is not control, the agenda of God is to love. Love always seeks the best for the beloved, even at great cost. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To the end, not to condemn the world, but to save it. John 3. The power of love to change the world cannot be underestimated. Martin Luther King Jr. called that power power soul force, soul force. He learned the principles of soul force from being a Christian, following the ethics of Jesus, and from learning Gandhi's use of the phrase to describe his methods of nonviolent resistance. In terms of social change, soul force is based on the power of an idea freedom set them free if our great nation has any real power at all it is in the abundance of freedom that we enjoy here and our willingness to share this power with the world it's the only export we have that will have any power over others not money not bombs not self-interest or freedom it's freedom Archbishop Desmond Tutu God rest his soul left us the end of last year he came to Maryland helped us start our truth and reconciliation process which ended up in us voting the to uh, uh, an amount of money about 20 percent of our diocesan budget represents that Is going to reparations, to repair damage that our church helped to cause. But I'm not going to go into that. Y'all seen that video. Desmond Tutu, he said, when a people decide they want to be free, nothing can stop them. Louise Degra Finry was going to be free, nothing was going to stop her. Pass the biscuits. They can even stare down the barrel of a gun, and they will prevail. He did. This soul force is not only the power to change human lives. And what's your testimony? Has soul force changed your life? Has something been turned around in you? Or are you thinking about it? You're in the right place. (laughs) You came to All All Souls Church. Let the power of the gospel change you. But it can also change your community. If we get together the church, we can do things like build a big structure next door to the church (laughs) to house people. That's soul force. Soul force. Thank you, Phil. And thank you, Vestry. And thank you all for showing the world the power of love. In a book, called A Force More Powerful written by Peter Ackerman and Jack Duvall. A Force More Powerful. Say it after me. A Force Force More Powerful. It's about 20 years old. Get the book or go to PBS and see the video in which these authors, they document movements of mass social change that have resisted systems of injustice on every continent of the world. And here's what they did. They concluded that the 20th century should have been known as the century that demonstrated, once and for all, the triumph of nonviolent action as the most powerful force toward freedom in the world. They reminded us that it wasn't physical force that drove the mighty British Empire from colonial India in 1947. It was soul force led by Gandhi and others. It wasn't violent force that successfully resisted the Nazis in Denmark and saved many Jews. Read about it. It wasn't violent force that brought down the dictator General Martinez in El Salvador in 1944 It wasn't physical or violent force that brought down segregation in the American South in the 50s and 60s. It wasn't violent force that restored democracy in the Philippines in 1986. It wasn't violent force that moved Lech Walesa and solidarity into power in Poland. It wasn't violent force that brought down totalitarian regimes in the former Soviet Union, USSR, and Eastern Europe. Hello, Vladimir Putin. I hope you remember your history. Because what, reportedly, you have in mind is not going to work. It may for a season, but you'll go and you'll be added to that list of former dictators who, who move armies to destroy civilizations and nations and you'll be on the ash deep, ash dump of history because you didn't read and learn from it. And you didn't know the powers of soul force. You thought the military would do it. It wasn't physical force that dismantled apartheid and the racist government in South Africa, led by Tutu and others. It was soul force in every case. And if that above representative list, there are more, if that's new or shocking to you, it's because we have done a poor job in this country of teaching any of the principles of nonviolent action as a way of solving conflicts. Many fear that our culture will never do this because we have become intoxicated with violence as the only effective means to achieve our personal and national aspirations. We have worshiped far too long at the altar of the gun. The gun has become an idol in America. It will save us, and it's idolatrous, and it's anti-gospel. This has led to what many call the mythology of violence, the widely held myth, and it's a myth, that violence is ultimately the only thing that'll work. And that nonviolence is a pipe dream for idealists who do not know how the world really operates. God knows how to oper- how the world operates. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus, to say, Let me show you how this thing's gonna work. And by the way, you're gonna kill him. But that won't be the last word. Because he's going to rise again. Resurrection. God has the big trump card. What's the worst that you can do? Oh, it's death? It's death? I trump it. Resurrection. Resurrection. Power. Let me say here as I'm winding down, thankfully, I know y'all got stuff to do. <laughs> This is California. You have to go jog and surf and all that stuff. See, in in Maryland, we don't have anything to do. We just sit in church. (laughs) Let me say here that I recognize there's a time-honored tradition in Christianity of sometimes having to resort to violence called just war theory in in certain extraordinary circumstances, and our argument is not against our brave men and women in the armed forces who are sometimes called upon to fight and put themselves in harm's way on our behalf. We respect those who have to quell uh, violent offenders and protect us in our, city, our cities, county, states, and our nation. We're grateful for their service. We pray for them and for our leaders who can stop sending them places where they shouldn't be putting their lives in danger and destroying many others' lives, pray for our leaders. But you do not need to be a pacifist like Jesus. Jesus was a pacifist. And before you tell me, oh, yeah, he turned over tables in the temple. Yeah, okay. But on the night in which he was betrayed, and the disciple pulled out a sword to say, we can take him. Jesus said, put that down. My kingdom will not come this way. And Jesus' followers held to that philosophy for at least the first 300 years of the Christian movement. In fact, they won over the pagan Roman Empire and didn't fight a single battle getting there. But after they, our ancestors, assume power, then we start forgetting some of the lessons of our ancient forebears. You don't have to be a pacifist, like Jesus, or Gandhi, or King, or Tutu, or the Dalai Lama, in order to learn any of the almost 200 methods of nonviolent action that have been proven to be effective in removing unjust institutions and governments and in restoring peace and freedom. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we are called upon to teach peace as well as practice peace and start talking about peace and nonviolence. Nobody else is. Name me a political leader right now in our nation who talks about the power of nonviolence. And few religious leaders. We must repent, both individually and collectively, for believing that violence and killing is the only way toward peace. Let me close with this. Near the end of his life, Martin King, Jr., he had this to say about the civil rights struggle. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is a moral obligation for us as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured, be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer and to love. And one day we shall win our freedom, he said, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. My brothers and sisters, that's the power of love. Even for one's enemies, that's soul force, the way of Jesus. Amen.